A very good evening to you. Um, welcome to the LSE, if you're not normally here. Good to see if you are. I- I'm Tony Travers uh, from the Institute of Public Affairs uh, and the Government Department here at the LSE. Uh, this is an event uh, co-sponsored by the European Institute. My colleague Kevin Featherstone is here in the front row. He's runs the European Institute and uh, the IPA. So welcome all. Um, the event as you can see, it's called Clean Brexit, Why Leaving the EU Still Makes Sense. Uh, hashtag LSE Brexit, you can see underneath there. The LSE, uh, through the European Institute and the IPA, is running a long, really a long programme of events about Brexit, looking at all sides of the argument and at various aspects of how Brexit is going along and how it may turn out. And we've included amongst this a number of book launch type events, and this is uh, definitely one of those. And our two distinguished speakers this evening are Liam Halligan and uh, Gerard Lyons, Dr. Gerard Lyons. Um, I'll just say a little bit about them each. What's going to happen is Gerard will speak for about, well, the, the book is a book of two halves. The beginning is effectively about the process that the UK is currently involved in, in extricating itself from the EU. And then the second part, and that's what the first part of the book about, the second part of the book is about the future and what Britain should do in the future. I think I've got that right, authors, have I? Yep. And then each half is going to be spoken uh, about by each author for about half of the time. So there'll be some choreography. It'll be more like a ballet than anything else. Uh, move backwards and forwards across the stage. And then after that, there'll be an opportunity uh, when they've both spoken, both authors have spoken for questions and answers from all of everybody here. And then at the very end of that, uh, there is a pile of books outside, and the authors will be happy for anybody who wishes to buy a copy to sign the books. So that's at the end at 8 o'clock. So... Um, both uh, Liam, I don't know, both Liam and Jara for a number of years, actually, as it happens. Uh, Liam uh, has written uh, his weekly economic agenda column in the Sunday Telegraph since 2003. He's been a journalist on a number of UK and international outlets, certainly at Channel 4, where he made challenging programmes about uh, government and the public services. And... Uh, Gerard, Gerard Lyons, is a leading UK and international economist, has been uh, an economist in the City of London for a number of years, and I knew him uh, when he worked with Boris Johnson as Boris Johnson's chief economic advisor when Boris uh, was Mayor of London. So they are both experienced uh, not only in terms of public policy but also very much so in terms of economics. They've written this book. Uh, here is a copy of the book. I should just wave it. So here it is. This is what it looks like with a rather sort of jolly front cover. And so what I want to do now is to invite uh, Gerard Lyons to uh, open the evening up and then Liam to follow and then we'll do the same again. Ladies and gentlemen, Gerard Lyons. Well, thank you for that kind introduction. Um, Can I just make some thank yous first? First, a thank you to the European Institute here at the LSE and to its leader, Kevin Featherstone. And thank you to the Institute of Public Affairs here at the LSE and its director, Tony Travers, for inviting Liam and myself to speak here about our book, Clean Brexit. Also, not to be forgotten, we would both like to thank Antigone 
Balagari, who basically has organised and coordinated everything along with her helpers. She's at the back, so thank you very much indeed. She actually does a great job at all these events, so thank you. Before we get going, I should actually say I have a sort of partial association with the LSC, so I should make that clear. I'm on the board or the advisory board of the Grantham Institute on Climate Change and the Environment here at the LSC, which is jointly based here at the LSC and at Imperial. In fact, I would argue it's the leading think tank on climate change and environment in the world, or maybe one of the leading ones. So if you are a believer in climate change as I am, then I would encourage you, if you haven't already, to read their research. And if you don't believe in climate change, then you should definitely read their research. But that's my association with the LSC, and I'm delighted to be involved with them. As Tony has mentioned, there are two parts to the book. So what will happen is I'll speak about part of the first half, then Liam will speak about the other part of the first half, and then we'll come back and we'll speak about the second half. I said to Tony before, it's not going to be like an Arsenal-Chelsea game of two halves. It's more like a Fulham-Man United game of two halves. Lots of goals, unfortunately, probably not always going in at both ends. But there you go. So hopefully it'll be exciting for you. Um, How to make a success of Brexit. The book is aimed at people who are Remainers or Leavers, and it's about how Britain should actually seize the opportunity. I would actually argue that Brexit is one of the best things that could have ever happened to the UK economy, and indeed the younger you are, the more optimistic you should be, because leaving the EU is not easy. Being in something for over 40 years, where it's almost become institutionalised, makes it difficult. The benefits will become clearer the further ahead we project. But to make a success of Brexit, the UK really needs to get three things right. It needs to get its domestic economy in shape, and we'll come to that in the second half of our talk this evening. But also, it needs to get its relationship with the rest of the world outside of the EU on the right footing. And quite importantly as well, it naturally needs to have a good future relationship economically, politically, culturally, in all shapes and forms, with the EU itself. So the domestic agenda, the global agenda, and also in some respects the regional agenda in terms of the regions being the EU and the UK. Let me focus on some issues that I would like to stress in terms of where we are. It's important to understand that the European Union is primarily a political project. It's only really here in the United Kingdom that we tend to view it through an economic and financial lens. Indeed, I would argue that if you go to 27 of the other EU countries, it's largely a political mandate. And the EU founders, and indeed some of the current people in Brussels, have not hidden from saying that. They want a United States of Europe. Hence, sovereignty is a key part of why the UK needs to leave. And it's about basically ensuring that we position ourselves to empower Parliament and in turn the British people. But not only is the EU primarily a political project, it's also built on very shaky foundations. It's built on the euro. And the euro is probably the worst economic idea ever thought up by anyone, anywhere, at any time. The euro simply does not work. It basically ties together economies within the EU... Greece, Portugal, Spain, with northern European economies. So not only is the EU a political project, it's built on shaky foundations, and the only real way for the euro to survive is not just transfer payments, it's all from the north to the south of Europe, 
is effectively for it to fast speed towards a political union. The cyclical recovery that's underway within the Eurozone at the moment is welcome, given the high rates of unemployment, particularly youth unemployment across many parts of the EU, and it's something that we anticipated and we hope will continue. Now, people vote for all sorts of reasons. During the referendum campaign and since, it appears that it was a combination of three key factors in particular. Sovereignty, migration, and the economy. Now, sovereignty is about returning power and effectively lawmaking to Westminster, making our politicians accountable to the British people. Now, there is a tendency, I think, to view this as a sort of conservative versus Labour idea. When I was younger, it was very much the Labour Party who was arguing the sovereignty case. Indeed, in the referendum in 75, I was 13, 14, 13 at the time, I think, um, Peter Shaw, then one of the leaders in the Labour Party, I remember being impressed by his speech then. But you could even go back to 1962. Hugh Gateskill, the then leader of the Labour Party at the Labour Party conference, gave a very empowering speech as to why it was not in Britain's interest to join the then EEC, European Economic Community. So whether it was Gateskill, Peter Shaw, indeed Tony Benn, sovereignty is across the party spectrum. Migration will come to later, but it's about basically addressing the need to have a sensible migration policy. And in terms of the economy, um, I was one of the co-founders of Economists for Brexit. That's not because every economic argument is in favour of leaving the EU, but this is no different to most other economic arguments. There are economic arguments both for and against. And in my view, the economic arguments against the EU and in favour of Brexit overpower the arguments on the other side. But it's not easy to leave. And in the book, and indeed during the referendum campaign, I argued and we argued that um, it would be like a Nike schwoos leaving the EU. A tick, maybe, if you don't buy Nike gear. Um, it's not easy to leave. Any economy is driven by a combination of economics or economic fundamentals, policy and confidence. Confidence is one of the most difficult things to predict. And as we've seen over the last year, the economy has been slightly softer maybe than it might otherwise have been. But let's be in no mistake, let's just be in no mistake, it's been far stronger than Project Fear would have anticipated or led you to believe. And one of the strange things to me was, particularly for an economist in the room, is how the economics profession seemed to gang up so much on one side of this debate. Because, as I touched on, there are arguments on both sides. But Project's fear basically suggested that within a year of leaving, sorry, sorry, within a year of the vote, not, never mind within a year of leaving, within a year of a vote to leave, unemployment would rise and half a million jobs would be lost. In fact, during the referendum campaign, when I went across the country, it was the biggest single factor mentioned by many people as to why, even though they wanted to vote leave, they would not vote leave. It did resonate across parts of the country. Otherwise, in my personal opinion, the vote to leave would have been higher. But what did we see? We saw employment didn't fall. It rose by over a quarter of a million. The challenge that the referendum campaign highlighted for economics and it wasn't the first time, the financial crisis was another, is that economics too often is driven by groupthink and a status quo bias. The status quo bias is because there's always a cost to change, and we as economists tend to always put a high cost on the cost of changing. 
But also at the same time, I think the economists need to come clean about the underlying fundamental problems underlying the euro. And also gravity models themselves have come into much criticism. Some people use these to justify staying in the single market and the EU. Ryan Bourne, a very good economist, has described them as backward-looking, and many are simply not well-suited to analyse long-term regime changes. Open Europe, a sort of pro-reform of the EU think tank, basically redid the gravity models based on future projections of economic growth. That would show that trade to Germany under the models would rise by 14% by 2020. To India, they would almost double. It basically underplays enhanced trade with emerging economies. And indeed, that was one of the key issues in our mind, the need for the UK to really start thinking globally. The EU is important, but its importance for the world economy is shrinking. The current EU28, as a group, back in 1980, would have been 34.1% of the world economy. Now they are 21.3% of the world economy. And after we leave, the EU27 will be less than one-fifth of the world economy. Important, but declining importance. We don't undermine its importance. We should recognise that other parts of the world are becoming more important. In addition to that, in terms of our export markets, at the beginning of this century, our exports to the EU were 61% of our exports. Now they're 44%. Admittedly, these can change from year to year, but the trend is clearly downwards. So we need to have a perception of the EU, and as I say, it's not that it's not important, is that, that other parts of the world are becoming more important. The UK, in our view, for a clean Brexit, needs to be outside the single market and outside the customs union. The single market used to be called the internal market. Then overnight it got renamed single market. Maybe that gave it a perception of more importance. No one would expect Britain to be in, let's say, America's internal market, if they called it that. Maybe China's internal market. Now, 8%, yes, that's right, 8% of UK companies sell directly into the EU's single market. 92% do not. Those 8% account for 12% of the economy. So they're the big firms, the big banks. They dominate the airwaves. They dominate the debate. The single market is important for them, but it's not important for all the UK economy. We are bound, though, by all its rules and regulations. It's not that British firms are against specific regulations, really. It's more they're against the whole swathe, the size, the scale of the regulations. You can still be outside the single market and have access to it, just as Chinese firms do, Indian firms do, American firms. Just as importantly, being outside the single market allows the UK to return lawmaking to Westminster, empowering the British people. Being outside the single market allows us to not abide by the free movement of people and to have our own sensible migration policy. Any sensible economy in the world needs a migration policy. A migration policy does not mean no migration. It means you basically let in the people that the economy needs. 
whether they're unskilled or skilled workers. You decide. And also, as the Labour Party has focused on, about, again, this hasn't really dominated in the debate, being outside the single market could potentially really increase our tax-raising ability because many companies take advantage of the right or freedom of establishment, which allows them to base themselves in low-tax countries, Netherlands, Luxembourg, but for the UK it's particularly Ireland, have subsidiaries in the UK where the revenues they book in the UK just cover their costs and the profits go back to Ireland. They would then be forced to establish themselves in the UK. Very difficult to quantify, but is another factor. To conclude my part of this evening's first part, we also need to be outside the customs union. In the European Union, we've delegated the ability to do trade deals to the EU, and they're not very good at it. Just as the services sector dominates the UK economy, and it doesn't really dominate other economies within the EU, and the services sector doesn't really work properly within the single market in terms of free movement of services... Likewise, when it comes to the customs union, UK demands to put services in trade deals tend to be low down the list. Our demands are just one of 28. Several much smaller economies than Britain, with far less commercial and diplomatic influence, have signed a range of free trade agreements that basically dwarf those signed by the European Union. Chile, not a big economy, has signed trade deals with countries whose total size is $58.3 trillion. South Korea, likewise, signed trade deals with economies whose total size is $41 trillion. Singapore, $39 trillion. Switzerland has done trade deals with countries of $40 trillion. The EU has done trade deals with countries the total size of $7.7 trillion, many of them former French colonies. Admittedly, you could add the single market itself is a big single market, and that will boost that figure, but it's still dwarfed by what goes on elsewhere. Also, tariffs. The EU is one of the most protectionist groups in the world. Let me repeat that. The EU is one of the most protectionist groups in the world. Tariffs are high. The three items that really receive the highest tariffs coming into the UK are food, clothing and footwear. Disproportionately large in the incomes or the expenditure of poorer people in the UK. Effectively, to simplify it, the customs union, the tariff wall, it was there to protect French farmers and German car makers. Hence, the tariffs are high around food. Pat Minford at Cardiff estimates that food prices would be 19% lower if we could cut tariffs to zero on food. But, but of course, whether you cut tariffs is up to us to decide. But also autos are high, 9.6%, which is why the auto sector is agitated by what could happen. It's no doubt, to conclude my part, to say that there are costs and benefits in the near term, like in any economic debate. But when you look at the case for the leaving the EU Project Fear was wrong leaving the single market makes sense in terms of sovereignty, migration policy and I would argue not just the tax raving powers as Labour's highlighted but our ability to set policy to suit ourselves as small and medium sized firms at home and being outside the customs union gives us a lot more room for manoeuvre in the future when we think globally thank you for the first part over to you Liam
Thank you, Jerry. I just want to apologise for being on my various gizmos. Um, it's the, the reality of, of my job. Um, I wrote a newspaper column. Uh, I got a call 20 minutes before I get on stage. I have to rewrite the newspaper column. So, actually, as I'm talking to you, I'm rewriting it in my head. Having uh, <laughs> um, So, um, I'm Liam Halligan. It's a great honour to be here. Um, I'm an economist. So I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm going to make you feel as if that's your fault. I've always wanted to crack that joke at the LSE. Um, I have very fond memories of the LSE. My degrees are from other places, a place with spires and a place near where Shakespeare was born. Um, But I am associated with the LSE. I was very um, honoured to work closely with Richard Layard for a number of years at the Centre for Economic Performance um, between my MPhil and going off and doing... Uh, other things, many good memories of that time. Students who are at the LSE, you're a fantastic place. Many congratulations. Make the most of it. Work hard, but not too hard. <laughs> so um, this is a remain. This is an away fixture for Jerry and I, I guess, to keep the football analogy going. We're very aware as 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 commentators, commercial economists, who do keep um, close links with academia, both of us, um, that most of our academic colleagues um, think we're mad. Uh, That's fine. Uh, They thought we were mad when we said that Britain shouldn't join the euro. They thought we were mad when we said that the ERM wasn't sustainable. We don't mind being mad. I'd rather be mad than wrong, Um, frankly. Um, I'm going to talk briefly about, uh, to finish the first half, so Jerry's talked about um, uh, what kind of Brexit we want, a clean Brexit, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the negotiation process, and then Jerry's going to talk a bit more, as he said, about his post-Brexit views on the domestic economy and the city and so on, and I'll talk a bit more about some other post, post-Brexit stuff. So I think the government's made some quite serious mistakes in this negotiation, and the book makes that clear. The government should have immediately a number of weeks after the referendum, have said unilaterally, we guarantee the citizens' rights of the 3.1 EU nationals in this country now, no questions asked, we are not going to make this a part of the negotiation, the end. The government should have done that. The world was watching Britain. Britain is a very tolerant place. Jared and I know that. We both come from immigrant stock ourselves. Uh, My father came over here from the west of Ireland when there was genuine prejudice, but he was allowed to make his way and uh, thrive and raise a family. Um, I'm a proud Londoner, um, one of the most diverse cities in the world. And there were many people, not least in the EU, and some in the UK that wanted to suggest that the UK had lost its tolerance because it had voted Brexit. The UK hadn't lost its tolerance because it voted Brexit. It isn't an insular point of view to want to do more trade with the 85% of the world economy that will be outside the EU after we've left, the fast-growing part of the economy, the part of the world economy where demography is most poised for growth. And it isn't an insular point of view at all to want humane, uh, moderate uh, controls on immigration that pretty much every other advanced economy in the world has outside of the European Union, and that we had until not so many years ago. So I think it was wrong for Theresa May to refuse to unilaterally 
um, guarantee citizens' rights for the 3.1. There were voices in the dark, voices in Whitehall that said, oh, that would be very silly, Prime Minister, um, because what about the 1.1 million Brits who are in the EU? Well, the, one point, the, the rights of the 1.1 million Brits in the EU are anyway um, uh, guaranteed under the Vienna Treaty, as are the rights of the 3.1. A lot of this is a sort of, domestic, a sort of international parlour game, a diplomatic uh, spat that has many, many people very, very worried. But in the end, I think it will be fine, and Britain should have made that initial unilateral move in order to set the right tone, a big, bold gesture at the beginning of the negotiation to let everybody know, not least the people in the UK who'd voted for Remain, many of whom are upset, were upset, are still upset about the outcome. I know I live with several people who are in that category. Um, I think a lot of people's stomachs would have been settled a little bit had we done that, uh, rather than having months and months of doubt that really upset lots of people. And it upset me. And Gerard and I consistently individually and together, uh, campaigned for those rights to be unilaterally guaranteed, both externally and inside government. Um, so that's one thing. Second thing on the divorce bill, um, well, legally, the UK doesn't actually owe the EU anything, but we've always said that EU, the UK should certainly pay any money that it's committed to during any transition period. And a paper that Jared and I wrote a year ago now, over a year ago, before the Lancaster House speech, it's the anniversary today of the Lancaster House speech when Theresa May first outlined that she wanted to leave the single market and the customs union. Um, we, we advocated a transition period in December 2016 in a paper that we wrote for a, a, a Westminster uh, uh, think tank. It seems that we're grappling towards a situation where the money that we would anyway pay and we're anyway committed to into the, the financial framework, the EU's financial framework that ends in 2020, coincides roughly with the end of an 18-month to two-year transition period. So we should certainly pay uh, that. I think that's completely reasonable. I also think the UK should be happy to pay if it wants to stay involved with certain uh, EU programmes that other e non-EU members are members of, like Erasmus, here for an academic audience, um, uh, Israel, Switzerland, various non-EU companies are in that. We might end up paying if we're in some kind of European open skies thing. Again, there are many countries that are outside the single market, outside the EU, that are part of that, so don't say that we can't join it, particularly when we've got um, Europe's major airport uh, and I think number five major airport as well. Uh, with many foreign flag carriers having a huge fleet here. So I do think we should pay something. I think the EU's been very... The Brussels have been very canny to try and get that agreement up front. And I think we've almost negotiated each other to a standstill on that. Brussels kind of says we've agreed the amount of money and we kind of say, well, we sort of have, but not really. There's still a bit of wiggle room there. I think it'll end up being something like uh, 20 to 30... A uh, uh, billion uh, pounds in the end, which isn't all that much more than we would have paid anyway, given that we're paying roughly net 10 to 12 billion a year. So that pays for the transition period on one or two other bits and pieces. And that number has to be compared when uh, people try and make mischief. You said it wouldn't cost anything. That number has to be compared with um, 
10 to 12 billion euros every year, you know, forever into the future. Um, so I think we made a mistake on citizens' rights. We weren't bold enough, uh, or the British government wasn't bold enough, where many nationalities in, in, in this room. Uh, I think we did a little bit better on the divorce bill. We didn't throw the, you know, the legal niceties into the mix where there is actually no legal um, requirement to pay, but we've offered to pay some, and I think we've got to a reasonable uh, number. The other thing I'd say about the negotiation is, and I know this will really upset lots of you, but it is absolutely essential to prepare for no deal. And no deal is an absolutely okay outcome. Now, let me just explain. We can all know that... We all know surely that if, if you're in a negotiation, if you've got no, no plan B, then you're going to be fleeced. And it's absolutely essential that we are ready to trade with the European Union under WTO rules. Now, you will hear on various media outlets and read in various uh, papers that aren't necessarily uh, printed on white newsprint, uh, that that's a disaster, that that's terrible, that we're crashing out and all the rest of it. But that's just not true. We do half our trade, the UK, under WTO rules. We trade with the US under WTO rules, our biggest single country trading partner. We trade with China under WTO rules. China trades with the US under WTO rules. China trades with the EU under WTO rules. The EU trades with the US under WTO rules. The three biggest trading entities in the world, it's under WTO rules. They work. Yes, of course, a free trade agreement is better. Either a bilateral or a plurilateral free trade agreement, it's better. But WTO rules are fine. And I, we need to prepare for WTO rules, not least because I actually don't think we'll get a deal. I don't think the politicians understand how complex uh, free trade agreements are, even when you're starting at a situation where there is absolute alignment, as there is between the UK and the EU by definition. The only time a trade deal <laughs> of that sort has been um, attempted. Um, it's almost a, uh, a sort of reverse trade deal. Um, but it may be through political spite, incompetence, misinformation, miscommunication, or just, you know, political chest-beating and machismo, we don't actually get to do a free trade deal with the EU in time, either for March 2019 or even for the end of the transition period. And then it's got to be ratified, of course, by 27 governments and the sub-regional um, uh, uh, parliaments as well. And we've seen in the a process of CETA, the Canadian Free Trade Agreement, how some of those can get very, very stroppy in order to practice pork barrel politics and extract a pound of flesh. So it's absolutely vital that we prepare for no deal. No deal doesn't mean just walking away. Yes, of course, there's many trade specialists in the room tut tutting. Of course, you need the, multi the mutual recognition agreements and so on. But if the EU doesn't extend those to us as it extends to every other country, I mean, that's just trade discrimination, and that's illegal. That's illegal. And then we get back to the sort of commercial interests in the EU. Do we really believe that German car makers and Italian furniture makers and French food producers, with all their 
extremely perishable products that they sell in the UK aren't going to push for those mutual recognition agreements and those customs clearances and all the rest of it. And guess what? If any of you, if people in this room don't actually know that this number is pretty salutary when you hear scare stories about endless uh, um, uh, traffic jams in Dover, I think it's 0.3%, a third of 1% of goods that are actually physically inspected. So I think no deal will be completely fine. Jared and I don't want no deal. We want a deal. We want a free trade agreement. We've spent a lot of our time arguing how intersectoral agreements can be done. But I think it's completely reckless not to prepare for no deal, both in a strategic sense. You have to go into a negotiation prepared to do no deal and for it not to be a disaster, and it isn't a disaster. But you also have to um, prepare for no deal because that may be the political reality. And just a few weeks ago... Uh, I went to talk to an old friend of mine uh, who happens to be the head of the WTO. Uh, I've interviewed each of the last five heads of the WTO, the only person, journalist, to have done so, um, given my long-standing interest in trade. And he described uh, no deal uh, in an interview that's quoted in the House of Lords yesterday as no trading under WTO rules uh, between the EU and the UK it will be fine. A free trade agreement will be better, but WTO rules is perfectly manageable. Thank you. Right, thank you. I'll be very brief on this bit. Well, the book itself, there's 50 bullet points at the beginning, always important for students, they're bullet points. 25 relate to the first half, 25 to the second half of the book. But in terms of the outlook, the world economy is in a very interesting position. We're on the verge of a new industrial revolution, a fourth industrial revolution. Being in the EU, in my view, would have been like walking the wrong way on an escalator while all this is happening. The EU is centralising, controlling, regulating. What we in the UK need to be thinking about is globalisation, technical change and innovation. The big shift, preparing for the big shift. And I would say, it, the way I would describe the second half of the book is about the four I's. Innovation, investment, infrastructure spending and getting the right incentives in the economy. Now, it's important to stress there are many, 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 many things we should have been doing anyway when we were in the EU. Infrastructure spending, borrowing at record low interest rates, more effective regional policy. Now we have left, ironically, we have to do them or we need to do them. And we can't blame Brussels if we don't do them. At the same time, competencies are being returned. The previous coalition government, very in favour of the EU, produced a whole swathe of competency reports. I read most of them. Wow. They talked about how the EU was basically intruding so many parts of our economy. In fact, the reason why it's so complex to leave highlights how much the EU had become involved, often without accountability, in parts of our country. Therefore, we need to return those competencies in terms of industrial policy being one, in terms of cohesion funds. But at the same time, we need to do things we should have been doing before. But anyone who thinks the UK 
economy did well in the EU just needs to travel a bit more across the UK. Indeed, the thing about the referendum campaign was I was surprised by how many people were surprised by the fact that some people across the country, when given the opportunity, wanted to say, you know what, we don't think we're sharing in success. Really, in the the election campaign, we said in the book, politicians tend to go to safe, say, Tories. They go to safe Tory seats or Tory Labour marginals. In the referendum campaign, they had to go to places where they never normally go to, and I would tell you some of them would probably be shocked. The UK economy really is a tale of two economies, the bit that's global doing well and the bit that's not global and is not doing well. Productivity is low, partly because the five least productive sectors of the economy, as we say in the book, account for 53% of employment and a third of output. Take the regions. Earlier this year, the European Commission did their once every three years, I think that's tri, it's not triannual, I think that is, once every three years analysis of the 263 regions of the EU. Three of the top five are in Britain. Wow. London, one. Berkshire, Buckinghamshire, Oxfordshire, two. Utrecht is third. Stockholm is fourth. Surrey and East and West Sussex, fifth. We have another one in the top ten. We have some of the most competitive productive regions of the European Union. But they describe the UK as having a heterogeneous wide dispersion. Northern Ireland is one of our lowest at 145th. West Wales, the Valleys, 134th. Cornwall, Isle of Scilly, 133rd. In terms of income per head of 263 regions of the EU, South Yorkshire comes 182nd. This is an economy that needs to do more to service the domestic economy. We didn't do that in the EU, sometimes because we didn't think about doing it and sometimes because we were constrained from doing it. The city, the UK financial sector, will be the European financial sector even after Brexit. Over the last year, the city is starting to change its attitude. Google and other tech companies, since the referendum vote, have announced major investment in London. London is to be their global tech centre. Technology and finance is becoming more intertwined. More people across the city recognise that. The number of jobs that will move from the city will be marginal. Some firms naturally will have to move jobs because they're business model. But since the referendum, more firms have added staff in London. More international firms have taken on new office space. Really, the financial sector really in London does well. We have niche financial sectors across the EU. Some of them will do well, but collectively it's about competing with New York, Singapore and Hong Kong. Workers' rights. We call it a clean Brexit to leave the single market and customs union. A hard Brexit, in my mind, would be a race to the bottom. We don't think there will be a race to the bottom. We're not advocating the race to the bottom. And with power-making and law-making being returned to Westminster, I don't think British voters will vote for a race to the bottom. It's often overlooked that the UK has been at the forefront of pushing workers' rights within the European Union. Take holiday pay. Average holiday pay is 5.6 weeks in the UK. Across the EU, it's four weeks. Minimum wage. I championed the London living wage when I was at City Hall. Living wages, minimum wage across the European Union um, doesn't exist in nine of the other 27 EU countries. 18 of the 28 have it. Britain has a high minimum wage compared to many other countries. There's no lower minimum wage. Sorry, there's no minimum 
wage in a number of the countries. Basically, we're at the forefront of that. Maternity leave. The EU minimum is 14 weeks with no minimum pay. UK maternity leave is 52 weeks. For the first six weeks, it's 90%, and then it's £140 thereafter. The UK actually has nothing to worry about in terms of workers' rights when we leave, and we as voters will make sure that's the case. Universities. Goodness, UK universities should be embracing this. If you look at the Times or indeed the QS survey of universities, there's only two countries that dominate globally in universities, America and Britain. We need to make sure we get more money into our universities so that we don't lose top academic staff. There is no real competitor elsewhere in the EU. The trouble is we need to have more vocational training in the UK. My joke is always that everyone says there needs to be more vocational training, but they always think it should be someone else's child that does it. We need to actually have more vocational training, and we need to actually have a sensible approach to funding our universities. And as Liam touched on, we are not going to be walking away from all these programmes. 44 countries are in the EU science programme. A third of them are outside the EU. We can stay, and we will stay part of it. The Erasmus programme, Liam touched on. The Swiss-European mobility model in terms of education is another model. There are lots of options, but it's about making sure that we're positioning ourselves globally as well as not undermining our ability domestically at the same time. There are other aspects we touch on, but given the time, I'm going to leave it there. But really, the world economy is changing. To make a success of leaving the European Union... I think we need to stop thinking about how to undermine the process, and we need, not necessarily you in the room, but collectively as a nation, to combine together to make sure that we position ourselves globally, we have a good relationship with EU, and quite frankly, we really need to be investing, innovating, and spending more on infrastructure, as well as returning competencies from Brussels to make that the case. Thanks for your time. Thanks again, Jerry. So, um, a few little things from me um, uh, about the post-Brexit economy. We talk, um, we have separate chapters in the book on, on um, the immigration model, which we think should be used. We have a separate chapter in the book on, on housing, a separate chapter uh, on, on, on Ireland. Um, just as a, as, a, as a preamble to this, my final section, Jerry and I totally admit that there are many things that we should be doing, even when we're in the EU, that we haven't been doing. What I would say, though, is you know, if you hang around Whitehall a lot and around politicians as we do, it's, it's just astonishing how much of our kind of political and diplomatic energy is focused on the EU. And that may have made sense when trade was all about trading with your neighbours, but there's a fantastic McKinsey study, which we cite in Clean Brexit, which, com- which, which proves that the majority of trade in the world, in fact, it's two-thirds of trade in the world, is actually intangible. It does, distance doesn't matter. It's all about it's squirted down fibre-optic uh, communication lines. And it's that kind of trade that Britain in particular excels in amongst all the big European economies. This country is a financial services superpower. It's a services superpower, uh, uh, and, 
and to think that you have to be close to countries to trade with them and you must put all your effort into trading with countries that are your neighbours is just, it's just ridiculous. And if being in the single market and the customs union is so good, how come our trade with those countries, our exports, have gone from 60% uh, to only 40% of our exports now if you include the Rotterdam effect, which I'm sure all of you know about? Um, so I will talk just briefly about uh, migration. We believe very much, well, we both think that the five-digit uh, target is, is silly and is a distraction. We both believe strongly, though, that immigration numbers net that went from 50,000 in the first year of Tony Blair in 97 to 352,000, uh, a sevenfold increase in 2015-16. That was really fast. And people in this room, us up on this stage, we all benefit from that. We're generally at the wealthier end of society. But there has been compression on low-income wages. Um, a lot of the studies you hear cited on Newsnight talk about average wages. People don't live in an average world. They live in their world. And in many parts of the UK, uh, there has been compression on uh, 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 low-income wages, unfortunately. And it's unanswerably true that there's been a lot more pressure on public services and the public services that poorer people disproportionately benefit from and rely on, um, um, particularly uh, social housing uh, and, and the NHS. So we want um, uh, uh, a, a, an immigration system which doesn't preclude all unskilled labour at all. We want a kind of monetary policy committee of um, uh, immigration, if you like, where you have different stakeholders in the economy coming together and coming up with an estimate each year, and that estimate um, driving the number of, of visas that are permissible, and then companies can bid for the visas, uh, and, and so on. There are many, many ways that you can do it. We explore in some detail a system of regional immigration controls that has been pioneered both in Canada and Australia, a model the City of London uh, has been uh, looking at too. So there are many ways you can skin this particular cat. The important thing, ladies and gentlemen, is that the world is moving from 7 to 10 billion people in short order. We can't just pretend that immigration isn't an issue. And I'm afraid for the last 10 years in this country, uh, to discuss immigration has been uh, almost uh, off limits. That's ridiculous. This is a key part of our... Uh, society, uh, the things that people think about, and we have to discuss it in a sensible way. Um, and if nothing else, while it was difficult in places and some offence was taken and some offence was uh, deliberately caused, though not by us, um, at least we are now having a discussion uh, about this, and it will be the UK Parliament filled up with British MPs uh, directly accountable to British voters who will make these decisions. And that has, has to be how it will be. And there are many citizens across the EU who would like that same um, privilege bestowed on them as well. I personally believe that a situation where you have um, uh, freedom of movement uh, within the EU, where you have uh, the average wage in some countries... There's less than a third of the minimum wage in other countries. That is completely unsustainable. Of course, you want some movement, but it has to be managed and ordered if public consent is going to be 
maintained. Um, on Ireland, uh, this is a subject close to, to my heart, uh, and, and Jerry's, we're both of, of Irish origin, uh, explains our personalities, I guess. Um, but I, I've spoken to many, many Irish uh, policymakers uh, over the years, uh, and I write a lot in the Irish newspapers. I'm very close to the debate. And all I would say is that, yes, Ireland will do everything it can to get as much benefit as it can from this situation. And I know, rightly, I have many, many cousins who live close to the Irish border and even on the Irish border in some cases. My mother's a Protestant, my father's a Catholic. Um, um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so I do not for one second underestimate the pain and the fear that this is causing and you know, I cut my journalistic teeth reporting the Good Friday Agreement. So I, I totally understand the progress that's been made and the value of that progress. But I genuinely believe it will be okay. A combination of technology um, and pre-clearance and collaboration between the Guardi, the Irish Border Controls, uh, and the HMRC that already work together a lot, actually. The island of Ireland, for customs purposes from the sea, is, is one entity. Uh, and on anti-terrorism as well, it's one entity. We don't talk about it much because it upsets various communities, but it's true. The fact that Ireland isn't in Schengen means that if when you go to Ireland, your, your passport is physically... Not physically checked, but your passport number is known because you bought your ticket on Ryanair or wherever it was, or you got on a boat. With information sharing between the two um, uh, sovereigns, which happens all the time anyway, we can keep track of people. I genuinely believe it will be okay. And guess what? Relations between Ireland and England, thankfully for people like me and people like Joe, they have not been better in a thousand years um, and I really think we can work this out. And there is not one mainstream political party that wants a hard border imposed. And I think actually, and here's, here, this will offend Irish people in the audience even more. I've, I'm sorry if that happens. Um, but I think in the end, Irish people will not tolerate um, uh, a third party telling them how to manage their relationship with the UK. The, the relationship is just too deep and too intertwined. And a lot of Irish people remember uh, the bailouts uh, imposed on Ireland to save the European banking system. We took one for the team, said um, uh, Finance Minister Cowan at the time. A lot of Irish people remember having to be made to vote twice in Nice and Lisbon. Uh, a lot of Irish people are seeing, oh, now we're becoming net contributors. I'm not advocating a Brexit for a moment, but I do think Ireland should keep an open mind because no one has got more skin in this game um, uh, than Ireland of any other non-UK, uh, any other country apart from the UK. And think about it, if Ireland, if the UK and the US do a trade deal, so these are massive countries, the two most important countries in the world for Ireland, economically, culturally, psychologically, all those blood ties. Imagine if Ireland couldn't join that UK-US free trade deal because it had a free trade deal with Latvia. Just think about that. That would be a game changer. And I'm saying I don't think Erexit should happen, but Ireland should keep an open mind. The last thing I'll just say is on, on housing. There are some things we can do 
outside the EU that we couldn't do inside the EU. I mean, if you, you... You guys probably aren't interested in the UK fishing industry. It's quite small economically. But I've visited a lot of fishing communities over the years. I have family who are in, in the fishing industry, both in Scotland uh, and in the West Country. And what's happened to British fishing is absolutely unforgivable... Um, and if we can resurrect our fishing community and get those... Some of the worst poverty in the UK is just inland from now defunct or very underperforming fishing villages. If we can get our fishing industry back up again, I think it's good for environmentalists. If you talk to Greenpeace, they're extremely excited about Brexit. They don't get invited on the telly to talk about that aspect, but they are. They think it's a real chance to make the US, the UK's fishing industry more sustainable, and it is. Um, I think also outside the EU we can, we can use state aid a lot more. Jared and I are not sort of, you know, stripped down uh, Vienna economists. We believe in a very active state. You can do things outside the EU that you can't in the EU, like free ports. You can use free ports. You can use enterprise zones. You can use local tax incentives. You can set your own VATs of VAT on certain goods. I mean, how fundamental is that to a, to a, to a country, a democratic country, to set your own VAT? And we can use these tax incentives cleverly. There's a lot of very clever policymakers in this country. Um, uh, so we can use these new freedoms quite well. And the last thing I'd say is on housing. For, for me, and I think for Jerry too, this is, um, after Brexit, and maybe even including Brexit, the most important policy issue in the UK. I personally believe if the government doesn't create the conditions where there is more house building fast, more land availability, pushing the big developers into actually building the houses they've been given planning permission for rather than cynically not building them to keep prices high unless young people young professionals young non-professionals have a chance to buy their homes the way Jared did and I did a few years ago then I think um, I think there'll be a, a proper implosion of British politics actually um, and I think um, uh, within that you, we could actually end up uh, in a situation where Brexit doesn't happen. So, thank you for listening to us. Um, we are... We have actually, personally, individually and together, we're quite robust characters, but we have taken a huge amount of abuse for uh, having the temerity to write a, a book that tries to explain why we think leaving the EU is okay. Um, um, all I'd say to all of you, I'm sure many of you in this room disagree with us, and maybe we're not going to convince you to change your mind. But do have a look at the book. Skim the bullet points. There are 25 bullet points on the negotiation, 25 bullet points on what we can do uh, outside the EU uh, once we've left. And do at least have a think about what we're trying to say. Thank you for listening. For listening. Okay, now um, I just want to start with one question to you both. I mean, you, what you've put forward here, I think it's fair to say, is a liberal, 
lowercase l, liberal view about how Brexit should turn out. Uh, you've got a particular view. There are other views about Brexit out there. But this is a particular one about how the UK should leave the European Union. So, so the question I want to put to you is, you are investing a great deal of faith in the UK government and the government machine to deliver this particular new world. So just take two or three examples that you mentioned in the book where I would have thought by now the government could have come up with some kind of policy. So let's take two or three. Migration, skills, the endless problem of skills. We're going to need lots of new uh, skills for the existing British workforce to pick up some of the jobs which are no longer being done either by people who are no longer coming as migrants or for the new jobs which you point to in the book as coming online very soon because of broader changes in the global e economy. And then within the industrial strategy, not even on the subject agriculture is there a hint of where policy will go. Not in detail, not in detail. We've had 18 months now since the Brexit vote, and there is amazingly little detail. So I suppose the question I want to put to you, to you really is, do you think that the government is up to delivering the picture of the future that you have outlined in this book? Okay. Yeah, well, we're not both going to answer every question, but given the nature of the question, we probably would both want to answer it. Um, I think it's important to stress that we shouldn't expect this particular government to take and seize every opportunity. Um, this is about empowering not just this government, but future UK governments. Remember, in most countries, MPs are called lawmakers, Bloomberg says lawmakers when they refer to MPs in other countries. But strictly speaking, you can't call our MPs lawmakers because laws are effectively made in Brussels. As Lord Denny, Master of the Royal, said when we entered, basically European Union law supersedes UK law. So we shouldn't expect just this government. It's about this and future governments. But there are lots of aspects. We are where we are um, Maybe my disappointment would be that when historians look back, they, hopefully they will decide that we did have the right prime minister in place at the time, but I'm not sure that they will. Um, so um, I would have done things differently. But take uh, training, migration. Um, Centre for Social Justice, one of the many think tanks in Westminster, a very good one, did a great report on productivity last year. And effectively what they found was a key factor contributing to low productivity in the UK was the fact that many big companies have underinvested in training, upskilling their staff in the last 20 years. Effectively, because they've been able to take staff from the whole of Western Europe. Um, EU, 25, EU 15 workers get paid higher than average UK wages, so they're either in skilled sectors or in the southeast of England. A8 workers in the UK from the Eastern European countries, they get paid lower than average UK wages because they're probably outside the southeast. But many of them have the vocational skills because that was a legacy of the Eastern Bloc. So they've got skill sets that we need. So skills and training are not things that we can address overnight. But it's not just a liberal agenda. 
There is an interventionist agenda as well. We argue in the book that we should, and Labour Party manifesto this year or last year, whenever it was, £250 in billion pounds in infrastructure spending. We should be doing that. So it's about investing in a domestic policy, having a sensible migration policy, mm. but it's also about being able to set the regulations and the taxes. But in answer to your question, we can't do it all overnight. This is a long-term process. You can't be in something for 40 years and expect to leave it easily, and you can't expect to always seize the opportunity immediately. But I think once we start empowering more people we will be surprised. Britain's biggest export is its pessimism. And that's the challenge. Uh, I'm not sure that's going to change, even over 40 years. Uh, but very briefly from me, of course, the, we, no one could think we could do everything by March 2019, and why should we? You know, the, deal, the deal that we get is you know, British politics for the next 20, 30, you 40, a consultation 40 years. Path, consultation paper on a migration policy. Sure, right sure. Now. No, it's not that. And actually, actually, in the process of writing a, a chapter on migration over the summer, Jerry and I wrote this book in three months flat, basically over the okay. summer, all the way up to uh, the end of August uh, t- uh, 2017, and, and it was it was published in seven in in three weeks. That's what you know, quick turnaround publisher like Biteback uh, can do. That does lots of uh, sort of politically sensitive books. In the course of writing that chapter, Tony. We came across all kinds of stuff that we hadn't read about in our Economist or our FT or even some quite specialist stuff. There's a lot going on. But, of course, everyone's fixated, aren't they, on the process of Brexit, the drama, the who's up, who's down, the the parliamentary trench warfare that's now happening. Um, You know, if there hadn't been... I mean, May was right, I think, constitutionally, to hold an election. Why? because of something called the Salisbury-Addison Amendment. Um, This is deep political nerdiness now. Um, But that basically means that if you have something in a a manifesto and you win a majority, the House of Lords cannot constitutionally uh, stop you doing it. They can amend, but they can't stop. Uh, So she wanted uh, to win with a manifesto that said, we will leave the single market and we will leave the customs union. Because, of course, the manifesto she had was Cameron's manifesto, which was a very, very different manifesto. So I think she was right, you know, from her perspective to hold an election. But, of course, she had a ridiculous campaign, and she's not a great campaigner, and she was pretty badly advised. So we ended up with this hung parliament. Now, objectively, I would say, the two parties, um, Labour and the Tories, who ran on manifestos that said we will leave the single market and the customs union, won 82% of the vote. Right? So you can't say that wasn't a mandate for Brexit. And the two parties that were calling for a second referendum, well, the Lib Dems got the worst vote in their modern history, and the SNP lost you know, over a dozen seats. Um, so I don't, the, the, the election shouldn't have complicated anything um, from a sort of consent point of view, but of course it, compli- it, it, it upended everything from a parliamentary arithmetic, arithmetic point of view. And while the parliamentary arithmetic is so bad, it's not an excuse, it's just an observation. Everyone's nervous energy is so fixated on just getting the basic legislation through um, that there hasn't been time so far for us to be debating things like what immigration system are we going to have. Um, And Jerry and I foresaw a lot of this, not the exact electoral outcome, 
Um, but that's why, for the very beginning, I think we're the first two people to do it in, in any mainstream sense to argue for a transition period because these things won't simply won't be ready. Though, given the way government works, we know how government's good at delay. Yeah. I mean, don't you think that what you just described is sort of describing that you know we'll get to a, a non-existent cliff edge and then extend the cliff, the cliff the terminology, and then go go further again? Into I, the I think the big problem is the same one that David Cameron had when he was prime minister. Uh, David Cameron tried to negotiate a deal um, a week before. I'm not going to say who it was, but I was at an event in London and. On the main table, this person who was heavily involved was asked, what was the deal like? And he looked around and said, it's a crap deal. Not my words, the words he used. But then he explained how the problem had been that David Cameron had been advised by the Whitehall machine that he had to have a deal. That was in the pre-referendum day. And apparently the Prime Minister, then Cameron, wasn't happy with the deal. I think the Prime Minister now, Theresa May, is likewise being advised by Whitehall, you must have a deal. To not have a deal is seen as a political failure. And as Liam touched on, to strengthen your negotiating position, you have to prepare for all eventualities. Hope for the best, prepare for all alternatives. Likewise, Pascal Lamy was on the debate with me in Dublin a few weeks ago. He said basically the best scenario, he said it on the record, not giving anything away. He basically said, best thing to do is leave, do your deal, get the politics out of the way, and that's the best way to do it. Get the, once you depoliticise it, and the challenge is the politics. Okay. All right, let's take some questions now. Um, let's see if we got any male panel. I'd like a female speaker first, if I can have one. Thank you. Can I have the two people there, actually? woman and a man. And then um, a second female. So I've got... Because it's all male panel here. All right, I'll go for the man up on the, with the blue shirt. Yep, go for it. Hello, thank you for your insights. I was just wondering um, about UK agriculture, because you touched on it that it's kind of helping the worst off people in society in terms of food costs, but once we leave the EU, average food prices are going to apparently drop about 15% once we start importing. So just in terms of the future of uh, UK agriculture, maybe touch on food security as well. So agriculture, okay, agriculture prices falling. Hang on, let's do it three at a time. Let's do, oh, okay. take the one gentleman next to you and then man over there. Next door, yeah. Yep. Hello there. So given the importance of the transmission of knowledge, ideas, and information between skilled labor, scholars, businessmen, entrepreneurs, and the general public, what steps can Britain take to ensure that it is able to accumulate the political, social, and economic capital necessary to join the fourth industrial revolution given an uncertain domestic and foreign divisive social and political environment. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) And... uh, All right, hold on. Order, order. Okay, okay, very good. <laughs> okay, there's two, two men here. We'll, we'll take you both, one and the other. Go on. Yeah, thank you. Um, I've attempted to uh, follow the negotiation process uh, since we started, and I'm amazed how very complicated it all appears to be. And secondly... 
I think it's extremely slow and painful, the actual process. We don't seem to be putting a huge amount of energy into this. I would have thought they'd been negotiating 24 hours a day instead of two hours a month. And the other obvious fact in all this is that the power resides with the European Union. This is not an equal negotiation. We are being dictated to. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm actually a Remainer, but right. I do see it as a, as a real problem. OK, very good. Just pass it to the champion, man in front. Keep it moving. Yep. Hello. Uh, yes, I think that uh, sovereignty is a key issue. Uh, particularly for the UK. What uh, concerns me is if we go ahead uh, with uh, Brexit, and I'm sure it's going to go ahead now, what happens if we get a Marxist government afterwards? (laughs) Right. Well, if I may say so... Don't you love LSE audience? Isn't it great that there are no safe spaces at the LSE? (laughs) Not not for you, anyway. Not for you. Never, ever, actually. Now. Thank you, Tony. Thank you. We're going to... Fantastic questions, and we want to hear a lot more. So we will answer the... We'll we'll really limit ourselves and and answer these very briefly, but we are hanging around afterwards if anybody wants to explore our thoughts any more. On agriculture, one of the first things the government did do was to say to... UK farmers, we will extend CAP equivalent uh, and then for, for three years and then there was another two-year extension, I think all the way to 2022 in the Tory manifesto. Uh, actually, the majority of farmers, according to an NFU survey, voted for Brexit. Um, and I would just take issue, if I may, with your very um, uh, certain assertion that food prices will rise. I, I, I don't really know where... Said down. Did she said fall. Actually, the oh, did you say fall? Oh, fall. Did you say fall? My fifteen percent down. down. I, I thought you said. I thought, I thought you said negative impact. That so how does that affect then your average farmer? I thought you said peating in the broader world. No, I, I think I think there will be I think there will be farmers who have been sitting on. Um, well, I, I live in a farming commu- uh, district and talk to many farmers a lot. I think there are lots of farmers who are sitting on land that they're not using and they're being paid not to use, and they want to use it. I think the UK will become um, a lot more food self-sufficient than it is at the moment. I also think that um, we may even start becoming an exporter of food, if we possibly can. So clearly there is... There was a big assumption that farmers would be against Britain leaving the EU, given the power of the agricultural lobby in in France, in Ireland, in in the low countries. But I think the British farming community has always been different. It's much, much more efficient than most of the EU farming community. And I think a lot of them want to compete on an international stage. Now, that doesn't... You know, also, all the money that... The CAP, it's just money that goes to the big farmers by definition. If you have land, you get the money. I think there's tremendous scope, scope and Gove started to talk about this, rightly, I think, to reallocate some of that CAP equivalent money to support the people that really need it and do make massive environmental contributions like hill farmers and, and the Celtic fringes and so on. So I think if we, can, if we can distribute farming subsidies, which will remain to some degree... Um, via our own parliament rather than um, a sort of non-parliament, uh, then I think there'll be much more 
public satisfaction and uh, consent for and support for those farming subsidies. Yeah, three uh, others. Thank you. I was going to take uh, question two and question four. Um, question two was about the, um, the one you all clapped and smiled at. Um, basically, um, about knowledge, ideas, skills, etc. There's a whole host of issues here. Actually, the House of Commons had a very good debate last March on the Fourth Industrial Revolution, and there's a very good paper by Adam Mack, MP, about the Fourth Industrial Revolution. But it really comes to the heart of some of the topics we talked about in the book, actually, uh, about innovation and investment and infrastructure spending. Over the last 40 years, despite being in the EU, apparently despite the EU being fantastic and wonderful for us, according to what I've been told, the UK's investment as proportion of GDP is right at the bottom of the G7. We need to be investing more. We need to be innovating more. And what do we do? We need to have an enabling environment. It's not only about skills and training. It's about vocational training. When it comes to education, we always get hot up about the debate between public and private. We're obsessed by class, it seems to me. The big problem in education is the poor, underperforming state schools. But at universities, it's about the whole stuff about empowering the universities that are clusters across the economy. They, they drive the clusters across the regional economy and more vocational training. So it's about an enabling environment geared to more investment and more innovation. And when you look at the fourth industrial revolution, it's really exciting. Actually, the stuff at the Grantham Institute about the green economy is really cutting edge. But when you look at it, you've got the fourth industrial revolution has robotics in Japan. It's got the green economy led by the UK. It's got stem cell research led by Oxford, Cambridge, London, but also Northeast America. The fact that Google, these other guys, are putting tech in London is a big plus. It does provide challenges because it means your educational skill set needs to be constantly evolving. And most of the research shows that the two skill sets you really need are to have interpersonal skills, so less time on the iPhones, maybe, and tech skills, maybe more time on the iPhones. But those two extremes are important. Um, so hopefully that answered the question. The divisiveness, I think, is the elite. The elites in this country have not moved on, have not accepted the fact that a referendum is about democracy. And you basically need to make it work. The referendum was great. I've got three children, 20, 24, 26 now, so they're all two years younger when the referendum was on. They said their friends never spoke about anything but the referendum. When it comes to elections, we all automatically go Labour, Tory, whatever. When it came to a referendum, we had to think and we had to answer the question. And I don't think there should be a ref another referendum. I think we need to make this one work, and that's because the decisive, divisive element, I think, comes from that. In terms of the last question about Marxist government, look, I do not the, mind... Sorry, I did the third one. You sorry, you did yeah. the third one. Just, br sorry, just briefly on the, on, the on, the, on the negotiation, um, I think if you, read, if you read the sort of UK business press, it does seem all doom and gloom. Everything that the EU proposes is reasonable and smart and savvy and everything that the British government proposes is stupid and, you know, ridiculous. You know, we don't speak for the British government. <laughs> we speak for ourselves. And objectively, um, we have made quite a lot of progress. There's an awful lot going on behind the scenes that doesn't necessarily get into the newspapers. And I felt that once... Um, Merkel had been through a re-election, then Brexit would become a little bit more grown up and commercial interests would come to bear more. So the fact that Merkel has stumbled electorally and May has stumbled electorally, I think has meant that the sort of minor political players and the sort of Eurocrats have had more time in the sun. I hope in the end they're swatted away. 
they're swatted away. So the real grown-ups, Merkel, hopefully, if she survives, and May, if she survives, can do the lion's share of this negotiation. I think where there's been some really good stuff going on, again, you won't read about it very much. Jerry and I follow it closely. Um, and as I've ever actually told me a bit about it uh, when I saw him, some stuff I didn't know uh, from his perch at the WTO, there's been quite a warm reception for the UK around the world from other trading powers. Mm. The ability of the UK now to combine with other service sector exporters to really get services into the heart of what the WTO does. You know, we've been in the single market, but the single market barely works for services. Even the European Court of Auditors admits that. Many exporting service com countries in the, this, in the UK, they've tried to impose their legal right to export and they've been rebuffed. A lot of countries where the EU does have existing trade deals, and you keep reading it's 63, actually only 28 of those are ratified. And a lot of those are with microstates, including the Ascension Islands, the Isle of Man, Jersey and Guernsey, I kid you not. But there are some big economies where the EU has made trade deals in 60 years of trying. So South Korea, South Africa... Mexico, Canada, when it finally comes into force. Not denigrating them, just saying when you're one of 27, it's really hard to negotiate when you've got conflicting interests within the 27. Um, but th th there's an awful lot of progress with these countries where the EU does have trade deals, the big economies like South Korea, South Africa. Can we roll over those deals? Can we, not cut and paste, it's never that easy, but can we roll over these deals? And you know what? Everyone told, we, told us that we couldn't. But it seems as though we can. It seems as though we can. This is a big economy. A lot of people want to trade with us. There are some things that we're not very good at. There are some things where we are absolutely world class. And of course, there will be difficulties along the way. But even if we don't get a trade deal with the EU, I would bet a considerable amount of my net worth that trade the year after Brexit will go up. Briefly. Yeah, briefly. The last question. I think the Marxism question. I think one needs to differentiate Brexit from what happens in the next UK election. Leaving the EU, I think, makes us more democratic because Parliament becomes more accountable. At the same time, we shouldn't forget that clip from that Brenda in Bristol during oh, yeah. the last election. Another one! <laughs> um, the British people don't really want to have another election anytime soon. I think we'll have to wait four years and then it's going to be on the merits of the various political leaders and the various political parties. And if the UK government, or sorry, the UK people, chooses a left-of-centre government, then good luck to them to make it work. If the UK people choose a right-of-centre government, likewise. It's up to us to decide. And the economic cycle, the political cycle, is four or five years. Brexit is basically there about repositioning the UK, and it's about us to decide in four years' time. So I think it's a separate issue, but in no, it, we shouldn't let the nature of the leaders we currently have influence the opportunity or our thinking about the opportunity from Brexit, is my personal opinion. Okay. okay. Uh, Thank you. Lady there in a yellow um, pullover. Thank you. I need to take a question. Anybody at the back? Because I'm being a bit pro-front. Uh, gentleman there in a cap. Useful wearing a cap. And a guy right at the back there towards the top. So, yes. Uh, this have to be short and sharp, I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, Shall I, I ask? Go on. Yes, yes. I'm not right. up to them. Do no. that to them. 
Okay. Um, I just want to know why did England decide to have a referendum about Europe? as actually there is not one person practically who can understand what Europe means, apart from probably some expert. We did not, sorry, I'm French, obviously. We did not even dream of going that way in France. And it goes back to your first intervention when you spoke about Europe as a European person being... You said that Europe is a political project. Well, I will say it is not. If you're European, not at all. You feel European not because of the politics, but you feel European because of the economic, the financial, the, the um, education system. And you feel deeply European. But it is not at all for a person, you know, belonging to Europe as a political uh, project. You, speak, you spoke also about the euro. Okay, well, that's it. I mean, I just want to add there? another question. You don't speak about research. Okay. Where is research, research going? Okay, you know? where is research going? Okay, and then man up there. Myself? I'll do this. Yeah. Um, Quiet. Order, order. Yep, go for it. The, the, the point I'm about to raise is really fundamentally different from the issues that are prevalent to do with EU and Brexit. Um, everyone talks about politics and economics, but no, I hardly hear anyone talking about the effects of EU membership on our culture, on our so-called British values. I came to this country 40 years ago, and, and I'm sad to say the way society is today is not the beautiful country I came to. Um, there are fundamental, actually, coupled with what the young, the other lady was saying. Yes, we are all Europeans, but there are fundamental differences between UK culture and European culture, and and this is because the way our societies have evolved over the centuries. UK is libertarian. In the UK, we pay attention to substance over form, um, and uh, okay. really, it's high time. It's high time that some research is done into the, the effects of EU membership on our culture. All right. Okay, very good. And there was a guy right at the back there. Yeah, uh, two really quick things. Um, why not Irexit? Why shouldn't Greece and Italy and France and Spain and all these other countries that have had a crap deal from the EU leave? Um, and secondly... So why isn't, should, why shouldn't other countries follow Britain's... Yes. Advice. Follow our example, example. maybe. Okay. Or just, yeah. All right, that's a nice, and simple, straightforward. Just question. really quickly, it's, right? isn't there a danger there's a fudge and that we just pretend to leave and kind of leave in name only? Okay, all right, and I'm sorry to everybody else, but we just have to finish uh, on time. Uh, choose from those as you wish. A cornucopia. Um, thank you, thank you for your questions, and thanks again for for having us. And we will be around for for a while afterwards. Um, so we didn't vote. I don't think British people voted against France or, or Italy or anyone else. We voted against the institution that is the European Union. And there are, there are many, many people across Europe, the whole of Europe, and we're part of Europe, uh, who are far less content with the European Union than they were 10 or 20 years ago. As the European Union has become more and more 
centralised. It is axiomatically true that since the UK went into the single market in 73 and then voted to stay in in 75, that through a succession of treaties, more power has been taken from our elected representatives and given to uh, the Commission, which of course is unelected, uh, and the Parliament, which of course, Strasbourg Parliament, which can't make law, uh, it can only endorse laws that have been given to it by the Commission. I don't think... I don't, I don't think... The, the European Union Parliament cannot propose a law. It can, only, it can only check and amend laws that have been put forward by the Commission. That's untrue. I, I, I just have to... Not OK. No, no, hold on. Hold on, hold on. Let's not have a, no, no, we can't be... No, hang on, we're not going to have... Wonderful audience though you are. We're not going to have an audience debating across the speakers. I, I, don't, think, I, don't, I don't think the, the British... If you look at the polls, the, I mean, one superb European uh, Commission institution is um, uh, Eurostat. I think their statistics are, are excellent. And Eurobarometer is fascinating reading, and I applaud the European institutions for producing Eurobarometer. Unfortunately for them, it shows that in the early 90s, average approval rates across member states for European Union membership was in the 70s and the 80s percentage points. It's now in the 25, 30, 35 range, uh, including in France. Uh, France voted against, of course, the European Constitution, uh, and that vote was ignored. Denmark voted against the European Constitution. That vote was ignored too. And then, of course, uh, the European Constitution was brought back uh, pretty much the same as the Lisbon Treaty and everybody decided there was no referendum. So I think there is some deep, corrosive public cynicism growing. It's not something that we want to stoke. We actually think the EU's got a better chance without us because our legal system is so different from the EU's legal system. It's from completely the other end of the telescope. And our political history is completely different. You know, we, we have generated our institutions solely... Um, from within, rather than having to go through all kinds of extremes and, and palpitations that we won't go into now. But the fact is that across the European Union, uh, public support for this project is failing. And for many countries across the south of Europe, I'm afraid it's undeniably true the euro has been an economic stagnation machine. And I think there's great public scepticism. Let's see what happens in the, the election in Italy uh, in March. Gerard. Yeah, um, there are a few different points, and Liam obviously can come back. A research, the lady mentioned research. I thought I had touched on research. UK universities are at the cutting edge of research. Um, there's this perception that research is funded by the EU. Um, actual fact, the UK often gives money, and then it comes back. So it's all multi Laird. Uh, but as I touched on, we will be, if we want to, part of global research teams as well as EU research teams. You don't have to be in the EU to do that. And also, the UK needs to commercialise the output of universities, which will incentivise more money to go into the university. So the research side is, I think, um, not a worry at all. Um, should other countries leave the EU? Well, I think it comes back to my first point about, and the French lady also touched on this, that it is a political project. I remember doing Radio 4 Start the Week with Varoufakis last year, and he slated the euro, and I said, well, why didn't you leave? And basically it came down to politics and this 
Berlin from Germany. Um, so it's up to them, but uh, the euro is a fundamental problem. High rates of youth unemployment, high rates of unemployment, it means the EU needs to reform. And I think the UK and the European Union need to reposition themselves in the changing, growing global economy. The Cornell University table shows the top innovative countries in Western Europe are Finland, Switzerland, the UK. But when you look at the innovation really globally, it's the Indo-Pacific India, across East Asia, into America. America really blows people away on this. We need to compete with that. And basically, coming back to your question, I think other countries in the EU need to focus on demand. They need to focus on boosting growth, getting unemployment down. If Britain makes a success, then others might well decide to leave in the future. But the politics doesn't suggest that's likely to me. Maybe I'll touch on the culture. Um, Yeah, um, I think the UK is very much a global uh, society, a multicultural society. London, actually, the census data is very interesting. The, back in 1991 census, I think it was, uh, about one in eight people in London was born overseas. Now it's up to, gosh, uh, probably one in four. 38%. It, it, 38%, that's right. It was, it was 38% from the... Um, is on the par with Singapore, is on the par with other international financial centres. So uh, um, basically London is very different to other parts of the country. What we need to do is make sure this divisive, corrosive aspect that still lives on in some of the media and some people who should know better uh, doesn't continue. And I think the best way for that is basically get through the process. Once it's clear we are leaving in reality, then I think we have to move on. I'd like us to move on sooner, but maybe it will have to be later. Your final word, Liv. All right, go on. uh, And once people realise that Brexit doesn't mean that immigration ends, I think people will calm calm down. I mean, I think... um, I don't think this, you know... What's the, what's the, 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 the sociological vernacular? C, D, E, uh, strata of society who voted for Brexit in a majority, massively disdained by much of the media class. I don't, I don't think these, that part of British society is, is racist at all. The, I don't think it lacks culture, by the way, either. It has its own culture, it's just not your culture. The, for, the, for a lot of these guys, their heroes are, are, are French... And Senegalese footballers. If you go and stand on the Stretford end at Man United, as I often do, um, a place a place which 20 years ago that is controversial. I keep 30 years ago was racist. You know, Cyril Regis has just died. What disgrace of Cyril Regis getting booed when he went to Old Trafford. He wouldn't get booed now because if you ask anyone on the Stretford end if you hold a vote of the greatest United player ever, ever, including Duncan Edwards, it would be Eric. Can we finish on a high? (laughs) Get back on football briefly again. One one final thing to the gentleman up there. Look out for uh, an acronym called Brexino. Brexit in name only. You're going to be hearing a lot about that. But we we in the book don't think that should be the case. I think we should embrace that. I know. Thank thank you for your time. I was going to say, uh, I think what we've heard this evening is a clear exposition of a position and a view about 
that Brexit should occur and how it should occur. And all I'd say, uh, as part of a compliment to the authors, I suspect that this as a public exposition of a position is somewhat clearer than perhaps even government has currently managed. And that is an interesting challenge, I think, which I was sort of getting at with my question earlier on. <laughs> but this is another stage in a very long debate. Uh, the authors have, and Liam definitely did, uh, volunteered to go and have an argument out there. So if you want to go out there, you can have an argument. We've got one some to books one. to sign as well. And if you sign want to books, read it. of course, to do that. The book is a view. There are other views, and other views will be expressed at the LSE, at the European Institute and IPA events, so come along to those. Uh, all I'd say by way of a final thought is this, forget whatever you think about Brexit, the debate about it has a very long way to run, so we'll see you again soon to talk about it further. <laughs>